Okay. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you for braving it in here on uh, with the virus and everything else going on. So. My name is Jörn Tinemeyer, and I'm a Senior Vice President and Chief Technology Officer of Enersys. And today, as the talk says, we just like to talk about uh, lithium batteries, uh, safety, how to design them specifically. Forward-looking statements, we have to put this up as a public company, but I won't ask you to read that. But here, hoverboard accidents send 27,000 kids in the hospital in the last two years. There's the amount of devices in your home for lithium batteries is really starting to become ubiquitous. And the question that you should be having to ask yourself is, are they safe? And if you look at headlines such as these, you find out very quickly that they may not be as safe as you believe that they are. So then the question is, what about forklifts? What about if I start putting these lithium batteries which obviously a much higher capacity than say in a hoverboard or your cell phone, what happens when I start putting them to, into a forklift system which might be up to 55 to 100 kilowatt hours, very similar to an electric vehicle. So before we do that though, how much is lithium really starting to affect this space? If we start to see the growth of lithium from 2014 to 2025, we can see that the battery growth in general is fairly extreme. And the real growth in that area is lithium. Now that doesn't mean the industrial space, a lot of that is mainly driven by automotive. And if we start to think about where we are on these typical S curves, these typical adaptation curves, we can see that we're about two and a half percent is where the early adopters start to come in. And if we think about where lithium is in 2018, in our industry, in the industrial industry, it was about two and a half percent. If we looked at that in terms of motive power and also if we looked at in other industries that Enersys likes to play in with, for instance, UPS, telecom, energy storage systems, it was relatively small still. We're still just at that beginning stage. The economic drivers in this, as I mentioned, are mainly related to automotive. Automotive is really moving this technological space and this starts to become important when we start to think about lithium ion batteries in the forklift world and I'll make that very clear hopefully a little bit later on. So first of all, how does a lithium ion battery work? How does it differ from the lead acid systems that we're used to? And really when we start looking at the plates of this technology, it's a very simple system. At the top of the cathode end, we have aluminum and copper. To this we have a thin film of lithium salt that's typically attached to the top end of that aluminum on the positive side. To the bottom end is a graphite layer, an anode layer very similar to what you have, say, in a pencil. When you discharge the battery, the lithium actually starts to flow from the anode side up to the cathode side in a process and goes back again, a process called intercalation. So really, all you have is these ions moving in a very simple way back and forth, and hence it's called a rocking chair battery. It also means why you get significant more cycle life coming out of this. Depending if you charge the right way, you don't fracture the, the, the anode side, the graphite side, you can get significant level of charge out. The other big difference to note, aside from, say, a lead-acid system, is that a lead-acid system is what's called an aqueous system, meaning that if I overcharge that aqueous system, I have dry-out. I get electrolysis, hydrogen, oxygen, evolution in that system. I might have a recombination system, so it keeps it inside. But in essence, this is what happens if I overcharge. If I overcharge on that lithium system, it's a flammable electrolyte inside of it, and bad things happen, and we'll try to figure out how to avoid those things from happening. So 
Why is lithium starting to come in? Why are we seeing that 2.5%, those 5%? If, lith if lead was there the entire time, what is the reason why lithium is starting to come into this market? Why is it starting to become important? Well, first of all, the cell types have changed. Initially, back in 2000, 2004, 2005, back if you look at 1995, when the first commercial batteries came out, they came out what was called an 18650 cell. This gives you a dimensional cell, a very cylindrical cell, similar to an AA battery. And what we're seeing as, the, as we're progressing in this technology is prismatic systems starting to come out, larger format cells. If you start to think about some battery systems, and there are some car manufacturers, for instance, that like to use the smaller cylindrical cell, they might use six, 7,000 of these cells in a battery pack. And the first question you have to ask yourself, is this a good idea? If I have to monitor things such as voltage and temperature on all of this, how do I do that for 6,000 of these little batteries? How do I ensure that my welds are all solid on all of those batteries? And that's why a lot of modern day automotive manufacturers, most Western OEMs, are moving to large format systems. Systems on the 40 to 50 amp hour batteries, typically 10 times the capacity that you have in these smaller cylindrical system. That means for that same battery pack, now I don't have thousands of cells, now I have hundreds of cells. With hundreds of cells, I can now measure things like voltage and temperature a lot more easily, you know, right, much more downright to the particular cell level. And that starts to become very important when we start thinking about safety. One of the reasons people think to use these smaller cells is for something that's called fire propagation. What if one of these systems starts to ignite, becomes, has a thermal runaway effect? The belief is, is that I can move these cells far enough away from these other types of cells. The thing is, you want to try to avoid this in general. We want to design a battery pack such that we don't have to worry about fire propagation to begin with. It's one of the last results. So how do we start to do that? And we'll figure that out in this particular slide deck. The other thing is, is that lithium is not all equal. Lithium really represents a family of batteries. Remember I showed you that layer that was attached to that, to that aluminum, that thin film. This is where the lithium salt resides in. If we look at that, and if we look at the cathode composition back in 2017, you start to see these acronyms or these families. For instance, LFP means lithium iron phosphate. So on that, pos on that positive side, you have a very thin layer of lithium iron phosphate. In other cases, you have LCO, so this lithium cobalt oxide. More than likely in your cell phone, that's the technology that sits in your cell phone for the, cell for the lithium battery that you have. One of the more popular types now being used in automotive systems is nickel manganese cobalt oxide. And by popular, you can see by 2025, most of those cells are migrating to that nickel manganese cobalt oxide. Now this starts to become very important in terms of recycling and we'll touch upon that later on. One of the things also to note up here is the tonnage. Better than 250,000 tons by 2025 or 2017 compared to 600,000 tons by 2025. So that starts to show you that growth rate in that technology. And by the way, if I update this, 2025 starts to look a little bit more different. So this has just been recently updated, 2019 data, where now we see that NMC is starting to become much more aggressive. So again, think about your recycling streams. When you look, you have to make sure to use a cell chemistry that really is the majority that's out there. So even though some of the chemistries might be cheaper today, what happens at the point of recycling? 
And of course, if we look at 2030, it's completely eclipsed. Mainly, it's, it's all NMC technology by this time. Again, driven by the automotive industry, driven by that high cycle life, driven by that much higher energy density, and that's why NMC battery technology was chosen. The other thing, of course, is price. Price is an important artifact. And again, this is really, the price is driven in the market space by the automotive industry. So the more the automotive industry starts to use this, the more the price is affected. But the price is not that much affected anymore by volume. People still think, well, when the volume of lithium really starts to pick up, the price will start to go down. That artifact is really not there anymore, particularly when we start to think about gigafactories being built today. They're already scaled to an exceptionally high level. The real effect is really technology will start to become the price driver. Let me explain this. If we look at the different types of generations of lithium-ion batteries, starting from generation one, which is the bottom part, with lithium-ion phosphate or nickel-cobalt uh, aluminum oxide, typically used safe by Tesla, and we start moving up that curve, you start to see the different types of NMC technologies, nickel, manganese, cobalt oxide. In each and every one of these, the energy density is increasing, as you're seeing on the right-hand side. What you're also seeing is these ratios between nickel, manganese, and cobalt changing. That's what that NMC 111 means. It means that I have one for one, an atom of nickel that I have also for cobalt. And you can start to see as I move up into NMC 811, I have a much more nickel-rich system compared to cobalt. The reason for which is cobalt, just last year, went over 300%. So you're starting to see these value increases and you start to see the industry moving towards a nickel-rich system. In fact, by 2025, more nickel will be used for lithium batteries than any other industry, including steel. It'll be the number one consumer of, of uh, nickel resources. If you want to invest in a mineral stock today, I would suggest invest in nickel. The other thing that you're trying to see, because with the energy density, as the system becomes more nickel rich, it becomes more energy dense, but it also starts to become harder to control. And that comes back down to a safety issue. The other problem is if we start to see the price evolution that starts to incur this. So we're seeing that this energy density is starting to increase over this particular time period. By probably 2025, we probably have a 100 or 100% increase in energy density that's available compared to today. This also starts to, you need to really start to think about secondary life. Because if my battery system, and a lot of people say for recycling that secondary life is the best avenue to use, well, what does that mean if my battery is five years old and the energy density of those systems are twice as high as they are today? I have a great 386 computer at home doesn't matter anything, right? Even though it's not scratched in the seat and the screen still looks great, it's not a good computer anymore. And so this is something to think about as this technological curve starts to change, which is very different when we think about battery system. Battery systems, to the most part, in lead acid have remained the same for over 100 years. So one thing to recall or remember in this is that steep increase in energy density. If we look at lithium pricing and we look at the ingredients that sit in lithium, Remember I, I mentioned, there was lithium inside, there's some metal in there, nickel is in there, cobalt is in there, manganese in there, there's some electrolyte in there, there's some aluminum, there's some copper. These cells, a typical PHEV2 cell, which is commonly used for the automotive industry, weighs about 800 grams. 
And if I give that cell a price today, say $30 for one of those unit cells, what happens in the future? Well, in the future, as the energy density moves up, by 2025, I still have nickel in that cell, I still have cobalt in that cell, I still have aluminum, I still have copper. My energy density has increased twofold. At the same time, that unit price, because that material is still more or less the same, is still a $30 battery. And that is what's achieving that cost down function that you're seeing by dollars per kilowatt hour. Dollars per kilowatt hour is a direct correlation to the technology that's being used in the field rather than the volume of batteries that are being sold. So the price estimate is also conservative. We hear a lot of where these prices are. For instance, GM has said by, by in 2015 that they can buy cells for $145 a kilowatt hour. Elon Musk said two years ago that $100 per kilowatt hour for, on a battery pack level. We also have costs given by Envision Energy at about $100 a kilowatt level. We're seeing that really this comes down to a function of energy density as it starts to go down. And the price of lithium will continue to fall. The next piece is, of course, safety. How do I ensure the safety of the system? In the past, systems were relatively primitive. And we all know about safety. I mean, I gave that picture of shock value initially in the beginning. We all remember what happened with those Samsung phones, cell phones in the phone industry. We are asked today, is there lithium in our packaging? Anyone here ever tried to move a lithium battery that's of any size via, via mail? Good luck with that without any proper requirements that sit around it. It's a very difficult system to ship. People are very worried about it. So how do you dispel the worry? And the way to do that is to build a safety functional hardware or a safety topology based upon that. And that actually is what ISO 26262 is. This comes directly from the automotive industry, which actually came from the airline industry from another norm called IEC 61508. This is really how, how software is designed and how the system is designed. And I'll go into that in a little bit of detail. The design principle that you want to build a battery pack, and what we use over at Enersys, is using a number of shells or a number of different types of layers onto that system. Think about your car ride back home when you arrive back at your home airport. In that car, you have airbag systems, you have braking systems, you have mechanical structure that sits around it. You don't depend on the airbag on your ride home. You depend upon these other safety features that you have in that system to make sure that when something happens that you safely get to your destination. Same here, same when you build a battery pack, you don't want to depend upon the safety features of that cell. You want to depend upon the safety features of how that pack is made. It's that point that I made earlier. Don't design for that one cell to go into a thermal runaway. Design the pack such that that will hopefully never happen. So the first layer is a mechanical safety system that you can attach to this. When we do this over at Enersys, we look at a number of things. Most of it is now being done through simulation modeling that we then use back in the physical system. So to the top left-hand corner, you start to see the effect of an impact on that battery. What happens if I drop this battery from, 20 G, from, from two meters of height? What happens if I put an impactor on it at over 100 G to that battery? If we think about forklifts in a distribution center, I can't think about a lab situation. I'm thinking about guys on a Saturday night that have nothing better to do than go jousting with forklifts. So what does that mean when I have a lithium ion battery in place? 
these type of G, G loads, this type of hit, these type of collisions are real. And then you have to think about that you potentially could be sitting on a 40 kilowatt hour battery. Now that's 4,000 iPhones that you're sitting on that's separating your butt and a quarter inch of steel. You need to make sure that these systems are safe. The other one is they need to be durable. A lot of people talk about adding warranty to these lithium ion battery packs, five year warranties or even higher. Well, who cares what the cycle life is of 3,000 cycles if your battery rattles itself apart three years down the road? And how do you measure that? How do you make sure that if you're a company that you've never designed a lithium battery pack before, how can you guarantee to anyone that your battery will actually last that long? If you're a small company, you can quickly change your name, but Enersys, we can't do that. So, and that's also an automotive companies. You need to make sure that you can, you can survive the shock capabilities within that space, and that's exactly what we do. We actually have full simulations that test this way beyond of what UL actually requires because we have real-life data that goes back down to the physical system, and then finally that simulation is then backtracked again with real models. But this type of work needs to be done. Internal pressure buildup. I mentioned that when a cell goes thermal runaway, well, what happens if it does go thermal runaway? There's a significant level of gas that's evolved, and how does the battery pack start to react? We were at a particular site in South America, and they actually had just this. They had a thermal runaway event, and then because they couldn't cope with the pressures that were built up in the battery, the battery finally exploded. When you're doing this, you want to make sure that the energy and the pressure can be released in a proper manner. You also want to make sure, can the battery pack withstand this? And we've done this. We've actually done the full pressure model to see how much pressure is evolved inside the system, how much deflection do we see, start to see on the walls. Where do we need to add any level of reinforcement to that system? All of this work needs to happen in order to build a self-mechanical structure. But it doesn't just end at the mechanical structure. For instance, we also need to think about the thermal behavior of the electrical system inside of it. A large part of a lithium-ion battery pack is how we deal with the, with the amount of electrical current that's flowing in that system. And that's very different than a lot of these battery companies have in terms of experience. What you see here, for instance, is the heating of current paths inside our control unit. So we measure specifically how much heat is evolved under, and from there can start to figure out where the wearing parts again are, right? If I, can I withstand a five-year warranty? Do I have heated parts in there that could theoretically start a fire? Or can I heat parts that might be very close to a safety system I have to that battery pack? All of this needs to be modeled. Secondly, the cell temperature also needs to be modeled. Am I driving the cell too far? Can I make sure that within all the different types of regimes and methods that people use this, for instance, if I'm using this out in a very hot environment, can I still support all the cycles? And then what does my battery management system do if I have too much of a hot occurrence? What is the de-throttling strategy? What is the different safety strategy that I have in this? All of this must be thought of when developing a lithium-ion system. And that is controlled by what's called the application layer, a layer that sits on top of that that is able to control balancing, that is able to control things as state of charge, this is a normal thing that people want, state of health of the system, usage of the system, any diagnostic codes that you might have in the system. But the problem that we have usually when it comes to computer codes is that wonderful blue screen of death. How do we avoid this? How do we avoid any of these other problems that might start to come up, these errors into that system? And this is why 
at Enersys we're developing, or what we also have, which is a little bit different, a functional safety layer. And that functional safety layer then comes directly from that principle of ISO 26262, a safety topology layer that in essence creates a redundancy of voltage measurements, a redundancy of temperature measurements, a redundancy of the computational system. In essence, what you have is you develop what's called a safety level or safety integration level. And you look at the degree of exposure that the person is available to. The extroser is a controllable. If I have a thermal runaway, uh, runaway effect, can I control it? Well, obviously, I can't control it. And severity, I just mentioned you're sitting on probably 55 kilowatts of energy storage. That can be quite severe if that actually goes off. So you're dealing with systems which, which gives you a labeling, and in this case, what we use typically is an ASA level C or ASA level D, one of the furthest ones, because of the fact that you can't control it and because of the fact that it's very severe. And then it comes down to what type of errors am I trying to control? Are they random failure errors? And I also have systematic errors. What if I designed this thing the wrong way? What if I had a failure in one of my temperature sensors? What happens then? You have to have redundancy strategies that, are, that, that start to work. It's very similar to how your plane flight happened here. Typically, that flight was 95% done by the autopilot. The autopilot had a number of backup computers. There's backup systems in that plane system. This is exactly how this technology works. It's a number of redundant backup layers that make sure that if you have a failure in one, that it doesn't cause a cascading effect for um, an extreme catastrophic failure. And the final part, of course, is the airbag. How well does my airbag function? What is the safety level of that particular cell level? When you start to look at cells coming from Asia, and this is one of the biggest problems as well, in Asia, you may have 200 plus different lithium-ion manufacturers. Not all of them are the same. I worked in Asia for many years for one of the largest uh, lithium-ion manufacturers in the world, the largest right now. And you can see different types of manufacturing technologies. Even though you might be getting an NMC cell, who says that you're buying it from a reputable user or a reputable supplier? I've seen everything from dark factories where raw materials are brought in from one side and cells are given out to the other side, right down to the next extreme of someone just sitting on a small plastic chair hand winding cells together. All of this happens. All of this is put under the guise of these different types of chemistries that might exist. You really have to take a look at your supply chain. You really have to take a look at that supplier and you really have to understand, can they truly promise me the amount of cycles that they have? You have to be able to analyze every layer on that system to see how well is the uniformity of the cathode layer, of the anode layer. You need to be able to evaluate that manufacturer right from the supply chain of its suppliers coming in right down to how do they charge the systems, how do they release the systems. This takes an enormous amount of work. The cells that we try to use, and this comes from the EU car rating, this kind of gives you a hazard level of different types of cells. So what if all of these systems that I just spoke about break down? I'm an engineer, I can't tell you that everything that I've said to you will say, I can guarantee you 100% the system won't fail. I can't ever do that. However, I can tell you that I can design this thing to the highest degree in, the tr in terms of the state of the art. So when I do have a failure, the last resort really is that cell technology. How does it react to a overcharge event? How does it react to a nail penetration event? How does it react to say if I short the cell? And you'll notice an HL or rating or hazard level rating. This is a seven fold scale. Typically one means completely benign. You can use the cell again. 
And a level seven means that the system explodes, catches fire, or we like to say simultaneous disassembly. Don't like to use the word fire explosion in our industry. So you can see that level four is the highest that we have, meaning that you have an excursion of 50% of that electrolyte in terms of gas. And so this is typically the highest level that you want within that, typical, that battery system. Finally, of course, what everyone is always interested in is cycle life, but of course cycle life is only important to a particular point. After a particular stage, who cares if you have 7,000 cycles if the user only requires 2,000? Why are you paying for the extra cycles on that system? You need to make sure that when you use that cell data that you go to a cell supplier that actually has real data. Typically what you'll have is cell suppliers will come to you with maybe 100, 200 points and then from there do an extrapolation to see how well that cell, how well that cell performs. You have to have real data that really shows done on a significant level of a statistical sample to make sure that you have confidence in that system. You can't just pick the one or two golden batteries that actually produce the cycle life that you want. Finally, you also need to understand what is the effect of state of charge on that system. With lithium batteries, the higher I charge them, remember it's that intercalation, it's that lithium moving into that graphite layer during the charging process. The, the higher I bring that, to that potential, the more lithium I'm trying to place into that system, the more I have the potential of fracturing it. And this is why typically cycle life also starts to go down as I start to increase the state of charge on that system. And of course, what happens when I finally have to recycle these things? I already mentioned the concept of secondary use. That's just pushing the problem a little bit further into the future. Really, it comes down to, do I have intrinsic value in the cell, yes or no? If I have nickel in there, if I have cobalt in there, I have intrinsic value, more than likely I will get some money back if I recycle it on a per ton basis. If it's iron phosphate, I don't know. And as I mentioned already, you could try to create circular technologies, but in the end, it just feeds right back into a waste stream, and you need to make sure where that waste stream comes from. Today, most modern-day lithium-ion batteries, if there is nickel content and cobalt content, they're about 80% recyclable today. It still doesn't meet the lead-acid industry, which is at 99.9%, .9%, but we're starting to get there. So with that, a very short overview of lithium system. Hopefully, you learned something. Thanks very much. Any questions? Yeah. Sorry? Sure. Sure. No, really good question. So, as in every industry, there's a number of different methodologies that one can use right now for recycling uh, lithium batteries. Most of them are actually in the research format. There's a company called Brump in China that's able to now do this already at volume. And that's the magic word. You have to have sufficient level of volume available for the recycling start to make sense. But typically what happens, the cells are dropped in a saline bath in order to be discharged. After that, they're removed, they're shredded, and then placed into, and there's different types of technique. Hydrolog pyrological techniques. Most of the cells today, a modern day lithium ion NMC cell is about 80 to 85% recyclable. And that's already been demonstrated in China where that population already exists. But really it's population dependent. Very good question. Any other questions? Okay, great, thank you. Enjoy the show. <laughs>